We are studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. We're taking it in uh, portions that seem to go together thematically. This morning we're in chapter 14 and we're looking at verses 19 through 28. The topic of those verses, the disciples suppose Paul is dead from being stoned, but he miraculously recovers and continues his mission. The title of our message, Back to the Stoned Age. I was going to do Paul is dead, but that's, that dates some of us. How many of you know what that's a reference to? Raise your hand. Okay. Then there was leave no stoned unturned. Yeah, see. I try these out on my dog. Momo, she's very insightful. She's from Japan, and she's cutting edge as far as dogs are concerned. She goes into a kind of a Zen position with her eyes when she likes one of these titles, so. <laughs> Honey, I'm, I don't think we should be in this church. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor's talking to animals about Zen. <laughs> Do not send any of this to Chuck Smith or... Dave Hunt either, I tell you that. So we're going back to the stoned age in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened a door of the faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we do pause for prayer because we want to humble ourselves before you and before your word, which you esteem so highly. We want to ask that your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher this morning and that we would sense the real manifest presence of Jesus Christ in our midst, ministering to each and every one of us his grace, that we too would be commended to the grace of God in which we stand. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Was Paul dead or just mostly dead? Well, either way, when the disciples gathered around him, he looked dead to them. I want to suggest that anytime anyone looked at the apostle Paul, he looked dead to them. To be more precise, he always looked like he was dying. It's how Paul described himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Here's what he said. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Anyone looking at Paul's life as a servant of Jesus Christ would conclude he was always carrying about in his physical body the dying of the Lord Jesus, partly because he was so marked with the scars of his beatings and journeyings. But he also meant that on a daily basis, he was suffering from troubles and persecutions for the sake of Jesus that could immediately cost him his earthly life. Why did Paul suffer so much for Jesus? Let's read the rest of 2 Corinthians 4.10 where he answers that. He said, I always carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in the body. The life of Jesus Christ was revealed by Paul in his constant dying. As he suffered serving his Lord, it was apparent that Jesus Christ's supernatural life was at work in Paul. The more he seemed to be dying, the more Jesus was showing onlookers genuine supernatural life. It doesn't really matter if Paul was dead or mostly dead from the stoning. He was already dying every day. Whether he was miraculously healed from near death or resurrected, it was an example of the kind of supernatural life that was always at work. We may not ever face life-threatening persecution, but like Paul, we are to think of ourselves as always carrying about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. We should expect trials and troubles and afflictions and adversities, and we should see them as opportunities for the Lord to make apparent to those watching us in them that His supernatural life is at work in us. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you carry in your body the dying of your Lord. And number two, you care for the body with the life of your Lord. First of all, in verses 19 and 20, you carry in your body the dying of your Lord. We're catching up with Paul and Barnabas on their mission trip deep into Gentile territory. The citizens of Lystra had mistaken them for gods, Zeus and Hermes to be exact, the missionaries quickly put a stop to the idolatry. An interval of some time passed. One day in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas awoke, and instead of having their morning coffee, they had a violent mob outside their door. In verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, earlier on this trip, the Jews at Antioch of Pisidia and at Iconium had expelled the missionaries from their cities. Not satisfied, they traveled the 100 miles or so to Lystra. They persuaded the multitudes to stone Paul. It was a typical day in the life of the Apostle Paul. He never knew when he'd be stoned or robbed or shipwrecked or flogged or imprisoned or beheaded. He carried around the dying of his Lord. And so they stoned him, and then they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Was he dead? It's a valid question. Some commentators say he was dead, and they think that this is when Paul had his I've-been-to-heaven experience. But the chronology of his visit to Lystra and this stoning and that experience don't exactly line up. Even if the timing did line up, 
When Paul discussed his visit to heaven, he wasn't even certain if he was really dead or not. When he said, I've been to heaven, he says, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body. I really don't know. I just know that I had a glimpse into eternity. Now, the folks who say he was only mistaken for dead point to Dr. Luce's use of the word supposing. However, the word doesn't indicate doubt. It's not used in the way we use the word suppose today. It's a word that is used when you've come to a conclusion based on evidence. And so it may very well be that they had examined Paul and the evidence determined that he was dead. We can't know for sure, but it doesn't really matter because either way, a notable miracle took place. In verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Don't pass over the words, the disciples. Paul and Barnabas were traveling alone. The presence of disciples indicates that there were conversions in the city of Lystra. You know, when we last saw Paul in Lystra last week in verse 18, they had stopped the idolatry. They had stopped them from sacrificing to them. But there was no mention of anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Some period of time occurred, and now you see disciples. And so they did have an effective ministry in the Gentile realm there at Lystra. And so these disciples gathered around Paul after he had been stoned and drug out of the city and dropped there. And then Paul rose up. I wonder who jumped. This is what they would call a jump scene in a movie. Do you ever, do you ever, do you ever go to a movie and then all of a sudden something just makes you jump and, and, and you just people start screaming all over the... I love that. I think it's fantastic. And so this is a jump scene. Even if they were praying for Paul to be raised, it would have been quite a shock to see him just get up. And apparently, he got up and then walked back into the city. And so if Paul was dead and resurrected, it was a miracle. If he was not dead, it was still a miracle because he was thoroughly healed except for the marks that his body would bear for the rest of his life. And I think the most amazing thing about this is that Paul went into the city. He went back into the city of Lystra because it wasn't until the next day he departed from there with Barnabas for Derby. It was more than courage. As he walked back into the town and then through the town of Lystra, he was quite literally carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in his body. I don't know if that's the exact wording that a Lystran citizen would have used, but when you saw Paul walking around Lystra, not too long after he had been stoned and supposed dead, you would think that guy has the dying of Jesus in his body, but the life is being manifest. And he became a really kind of a living example of the fulfillment of that scripture. The Lystrans might have called him a dead man walking, but he was really a dying man walking. He was constantly dying and ready to die so that onlookers could see the power of the life of Jesus. Making an application of this to our lives, Alan Redpath said, and I quote, in any and every circumstance where there would normally be a reaction that reveals self there is instead a reaction that reveals the character of Jesus Christ. If you are prepared to bear about in your body the death of Jesus Christ, and by that he means to not react selfishly, 
then Jesus will be revealed through you. When you are mistreated in some way, if you bear it as a dying person, then the life of Jesus will be shown to those watching. It's more real than your words because there is a power and a grace in suffering for the Lord that really can't be denied. Here's another way of putting it. Let them stone you and then just get up and go about acting like Jesus Christ. Now, chances are the trouble that you face tomorrow at work or in your classroom at school or wherever you have to go, it's not going to be quite as severe as a stoning. I would hope not anyway. We're not to that point in this country yet. Uh, whatever it is, short of that, Paul would say, let them do it. Let them stone you. And then just get up and walk in the power and grace of Jesus Christ and show them that there's nothing that they can do because you're already a dead man and you're willing to lay down your life for Jesus Christ to reveal His glory and His grace to them. And so that's, that's a fantastic picture of the Christian life in suffering. As we go on in verses 21 through 28, you care for the body with the life of your Lord. There's another body that we identify in these verses. It's the body of Jesus Christ. It's a Bible metaphor to describe the spiritual connection of each and every believer with each other and with the Lord. With Jesus as the head, we are to fit together and work together as if we were members of his body. And so there's many metaphors to look at the church or the gathering of believers. And one of them is, hey, think of yourselves as if you were a physical body. If you were a body, Jesus would be your head, and each of you would be some member of that body, a mouth, an eye, a nose, a finger, a toe, whatever it might be. And, and, and it's a beautiful metaphor about how we work together and live together and, and experience Christ together, all moved around by the head and directed by the head to accomplish great and amazing things. And so as Paul and Barnabas wind up their travels and head for home, we're going to see how much they cared for the greater body of Christ. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derbe, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And so God granted them success in the city of Derbe. They, uh, then somehow the Holy Spirit let them know that it was time to return. Rather than take a shorter, more direct route, they determined to backtrack through the cities they had visited. Now think about that for a minute. They went back to Lystra. This is now the second time that Paul has gone back to Lystra after he was stoned and drug out and left for dead. I mean, so, you know, he wants to make an example of himself. He wants people in that city to know that there is a resurrection life available to them. They would have assumed that he had been risen, uh, you know, resurrected from the dead, whether he was or not. He had been resurrected from the dead, and here he is preaching Jesus Christ. You have to conclude that there is some kind of a power in this message, some kind of a power in this man that Paul is talking about. Then on to Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia, from whence the Jews had come, who incited the mob to stone them. Again, I thought we killed Paul in Lystra. No, God raised him up. What an amazing picture of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. 
There was another reason they backtracked. They wanted to visit the disciples they had left behind in each city. And so in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Strengthening the souls of disciples. What a great phrase. Something that should always be on our minds. Every encounter I have with another believer is my opportunity to see them spiritually strengthened. God forbid I would in any way weaken their resolve to follow Christ or stumble them in some way. Now, I am the happiest person in here that we're not being persecuted. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I am not praying for persecution. Don't want to be here if it breaks out. Uh, and, And by persecution, I'm talking about, you know, being stoned to death, having people break into your house for the sake of the gospel and say, you know, we're taking all of your possessions and there's nothing you can do about it, losing your job because you're a Christian, those kinds of things. Some of us have experienced different levels of, you know, what we call persecution, but we're not engaged here in full-blown persecution, and, and I'm grateful for it. I love our country and its freedoms and all. A downside to that is we don't really sometimes take our Christian walk as seriously as we would if it was a life or death matter. And sometimes that bleeds down into our relationships with one another. I don't always see my encounter with you, nor do you see your encounter with me, as critical. I I don't see it as the last time I might ever have a chance to talk to you or you to me. I, I don't always even think that I need to encourage you. Or you encourage me because nothing really is going on other than the every day of life. Bills and jobs and worries. And, and those are significant things, but they're not, as, they're not as primary as whether I'm going to be killed this afternoon because I'm a Christian. And so, without putting a trip on any of us, I just want to elevate us back to the understanding that it really shouldn't matter if we're being persecuted or not. I should desire to strengthen the souls of disciples. And that should be a major goal in my life, in my lifestyle, in the words I choose, and in all of my encounters. Am I strengthening you or am I tearing you down, weakening you, stumbling you? Uh, It's something that we want to pay closer attention to. Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of disciples by doing five things. First, They exhorted them to continue in the faith. This isn't a reference to having faith in general. The faith is a term that means the beliefs of orthodox biblical Christianity. Sometimes the scripture talks about the faith once for all delivered to the believers through the apostles and prophets. And so it's a term that means the beliefs of our orthodox biblical Christianity. Paul and Barnabas, therefore, were grounding them in solid biblical doctrine. It matters a great deal what you believe. Your beliefs determine your behavior. And so we always need regular systematic exposure to God's Word. It may sound basic, but it's always under attack. Every generation 
will have one or several attacks against just the simple teaching of the Word of God verse by verse through books of the Bible. And, and uh, whole churches and whole denominations go off on tangents replacing the teaching of the Word of God with other things because they uh, feel like the people need something more. And Paul and Barnabas said, man, if you're going to strengthen disciples for the world in which they live, doesn't matter you know, whether it's the Roman world, the Western world, the Eastern world, if you're going to strengthen a disciple of Jesus Christ, they need to continue in the faith. They need to know their Bible and return to it over and over again. Second, Paul and Barnabas told them the truth about suffering. He says here that the kingdom was coming, and it is coming. Jesus promised to return and rule over this earth. But in the meantime, we are waiting and we suffer many things. It may not win you any points towards popularity, but you need to remind believers that suffering is part of the package. You need to remind them that they are to carry in their bodies the dying of the Lord so that his life can shine through. Every now and then when somebody is telling you what a tough time they're having at work or at home or somewhere, you need to tell them this is your opportunity to die to that part of yourself to bear about in your body the dying of the Lord so that his life can shine through you. Let them stone you and get back up and continue to walk with the Lord and see what effect that has. Suffering is a big part of our life on earth. Third, they appointed elders in every church. The word appointed can mean elected or it can mean selected. We can't be sure if they voted on who the elders should be or if they were selected by Paul and Barnabas. Just a quick footnote about this. Scholars will argue for one of three possible forms of what's called church government that they see presented in the Bible. The bottom line is there is no one form of church government that can be identified as the only biblical form. Instead, we see that God raises up leaders, pastor, teachers, elders, deacons in each local church, and then these men figure out how to work together to lead the local church by serving it and giving the other members an example. I only mention this because, well, first of all, it's in the text. It's an important point in the text because they appointed these leaders. But also out in the Christian community, people love to argue about the government of the church. It's one of those things that, you know, they, they like to, uh, they've decided that out of the three possible church forms of government that you might see in the Bible, this is the one. This is the biblical one. And if your church isn't doing this, you, you're probably in sin. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to obliterate your church or something like that. And people argue about this all the time and they cast doubt and they stumble one another. Uh, I've come to the conclusion in my life that if godly, scholarly men, men who not just go to Strong's Concordance, but who could write Strong's Concordance, I mean, you know, men who are real scholarly, if they, through the centuries, cannot agree on what the one form of church government is, then God never intended us to know that. And what we see is godly men who want to serve the body, working together in different situations, in different ways, uh, and so don't get drawn off onto those arguments. 
Now, the appointment of elders in the local churches presumes many things. It presumes that every disciple will be a member of a local church. It presumes that the Lord's plan for evangelizing non-believers and edifying believers is the local church. And it presumes an organization in which all the members are submitted to one another and to the Lord. Jesus Christ loves the church. He loves his church. It is his darling. It is his bride. And this is why I get so annoyed and angry, actually, at people who want to put down the church in general. And sometimes we, you know, there's a lot of movements now coming through Christianity where they say, well, the church is this or the church is that or we need to step outside the church. You know, Jesus loves his church. If, If somebody came up to you and started Uh, dissing your fiance or your wife, uh, you'd say, hey, excuse me, you know, there's an alley behind our church. I'd like to meet with you out there for just a few. Can we meet there for just a few minutes? I have uh, five fingers I'd like to show you, you know, and stuff. I mean, you'd be upset. And yet all the time we're out in the world, oh, the church this and the church. Jesus Christ loves his church. Do we have problems? (laughs) Do we have people? You know, it's that old joke. If you ever find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. (laughs) And so, yeah, of course the church has problems and difficulties, but it is is the, the, the gathering of people that Jesus Christ loves and his apostles love. And Paul the apostle, he established churches with leadership. And then he went back and he visited the churches, not just Christians scattered all over the community. And so the church is very important to the Lord. The fourth thing Paul and Barnabas did to strengthen the souls of the disciples was to pray with fasting. Now, I'm sure they prayed with fasting to appoint the elders, but I see more than that here. It establishes the primacy of prayer with fasting in general. Sure, they they prayed with fasting before they appointed the elders, but that only means they did that on a regular basis when they were making decisions. And they did that on a regular basis in their lives. Paul said he was in fastings often. Not just when he didn't have money to buy food or when he, he didn't have the resources. I mean, he fasted by choice. Now, I'm preaching to myself when I say we need to pray with fasting more and more. It is the lost spiritual discipline in the church. When you pray, Jesus said, when you give, Jesus said, when you fast. We're pretty good at praying, although we all think we should do it more. Some people give, although we'd all like to do more. But when you get into the realm of fasting, most Christians will tell you that it's just not a part of their spiritual discipline. And uh, we keep hitting this in the book of Acts and in our studies. I think the Lord is trying to tell us something. And by us, I mean me uh, as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I uh, love to eat. Uh, man, you know, I was really sad the other day because on the news in uh, Italy... Uh, wheat prices have skyrocketed and they, they declared a day when they were going to not eat pasta in Italy. And, and my heart skipped a beat. I, I just, I thought I was having an aneurysm. You know, I just, I almost couldn't believe it. Uh, so, you know, don't take this as a condemnation. I think God is telling us as individual Christians and as a fellowship that we need to get into this 
prayer and fasting situation. Now, if you have health issues, you're not able to fast, or, you know, that's fine. Nobody's here to put a trip on anybody. In that sense, fasting is not commanded, but it is commended, and it's something that we should be doing. So do you want to, and then the fifth thing, excuse me, that they did, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We would say that they pointed them to Jesus. Now, doesn't that seem simple? And yet it's become really controversial in the sense that as we try to care for people by pointing them to Jesus and grounding them in his word and praying with them and all of these things, more and more people are being convinced that whatever we have to offer as the church is not enough. We need some kind of worldly wisdom. We need some kind of worldly medicine. We need something else other than the classic Christian disciplines and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's really a battle uh, out there. And uh, what these guys did is say, hey, basically they said, we're here. We're doing the best we can to disciple you. We're leaving. We have to leave. And, and, you know, God is calling us back to our home church at Antioch. And so we'll pray for you. We care for you. But we're commending you to the Lord. He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his Father's throne of grace. And I think we need to have, again, an elevated sense of the care of Jesus Christ and and of his love for us. And so do you want to have your soul strengthened? Be a vital part of a local fellowship where the faith is being taught from the Bible. Pray with fasting. Have a theology of suffering so you don't think it's strange when trials come. And then look beyond people to satisfy your deepest needs and desires in the Lord. Verse 24, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Perga wasn't mentioned before. It was famous for making flooring. That's not true. It seems they still did some pioneering work on the way home. It's a reminder to us to be flexible. Just because their current job description was returning missionaries, it didn't cancel out their stepping back into their roles of pioneer missionaries. We are servants. We should be available to do any and all that our master asks of us. There are times, even as Christians... We say, well, these are my gifts and my abilities. This is my role in the church. This is the office I hold. And so this is kind of my job description. And and I've said this before. uh, A lot of times people want job descriptions uh, in Christian ministry. And and there's obviously you need to kind of tell people what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, You know, if if you hire them into the ministry or if you give them a minute, you know, what, what are kind of the parameters. But I think... The more defined job description you need, the less you're understanding that you're a servant. I mean, if you really have to have it, you know, all of, all of it written out, you're going to miss a lot. You might even do that job really well. You might be the best person in the world that's ever done that job, but you're going to be missing out on other opportunities. You're going to say, well, there's a chance to preach in Perga right now, but I'm a returning missionary. I'm not a pioneer missionary. And so those people are going to have to wait until they send out the next pioneer. It sounds silly, but we do fall into those things sometimes. Hey, that's not my job description. Uh, 
We do it at, you know, hey, if you want to do that out in, in the workplace, that's fine. I don't mind. In fact, do it. Do it all you want. Hey, that's not my job description. You're going to have to pay me more if you want me to do that. I mean, that's great. That's the capitalistic nature of our society. It don't work in the church. We're all here to serve Jesus Christ. He's master. We're his slave. We're called to certain specific things, but to anything that he asks of us. And what a liberating thing that is. What a freeing thing that is. What opportunities come our way. And so in verse 27, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. How much fun was that? to have Paul and Barnabas return from their one-year missionary trip. The believers in Antioch probably had heard bits and pieces here and there, the way news traveled in those days. Some of them may have thought Paul was dead. They have, you know, maybe played their records backwards and thought, hey, you know, <laughs> Paul is dead. And so they didn't know because they didn't, you know, they couldn't get on, you know, the internet and check the latest news item and see what was happening. And so Paul and Barnabas were in town. This was to be a big buzz. And they got together and told the stories that we've just read in this chapter and in chapter 13. It reminds us that we share in each other's serving. It's not just that they shared with them what, they, what God had done with them. There's a sense here always that these believers who sent them out and prayed for them and supported them in various ways shared equally with them in the work that they had done. And this is one thing I really love about the church is that you can earn reward points. So those of you who have credit cards, all the credit card companies are competing for reward points. You know, you can, you know, get travel miles on your reward points or merchandise or, you know, those kinds of things um, so that you have your reward points that accrue and then it's like free money. Of course, they're getting it on the other end with interest rates, you know, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. But, you know, you get these reward points. And, and in a sense, you and I get reward points if you are a member of a local church. Let's say you're a member of Calvary Chapel of Hanford. Any good work that we do, any ministry that takes place anywhere in town or in our country or in the world, those reward points are going into your bank account in heaven. Because you are supporting it by your attendance, by your prayer, by your giving, by your encouragement, those kinds of things. And I think you're going to be really surprised when you see the disposition of rewards in heaven. I think that the Lord is a generous, gracious God. And he's going to reward you in every way he can. You know, when you call these credit card companies, it's like, well, no, we can't reward you for that. That's only on every third Tuesday when the airplanes didn't fly anyway. And, you know, I mean, they have all these crazy rules. God's going to, hey, is there any way I can give Gene a reward for what, you know, is going on in, over here right now? Or, and, and I think God wants to be generous in that way. And, and not so much to get the rewards. I'm just playing with that a little bit. But the idea of how wonderful it is to be part of the body of Christ. How wonderful it is to be connected to other believers. Not even so much for what people can do for you or be friendly to you or care for you. I mean, that's all part of it, of course. But just what it does for you spiritually, both now in indiscernible ways. 
Uh, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I don't feel this, or I, you know, I don't know what's going on. I think there are indiscernible spiritual benefits to being a member of the body of Christ. And one day there will be uh, really discernible rewards. In the meantime, uh, God is working in our lives and growing us up in the Lord. We need to get back to living in the stoned age. As we await the coming of the Lord, we carry in our bodies the dying of the Lord so that His life can be made real to onlookers. I simply get up after they've stoned me and I go about my business so that the supernatural resurrection life of Jesus Christ is unmistakable to my persecutors. If I get stoned, literally or figuratively, I have other stone-aged believers and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters rather, to care for me and to encourage me as I gather together with them in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We appreciate that we are not being persecuted the way uh, not only Christians were in the first century, but Christians around the world are even today, Lord, in many countries, being literally killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. We appreciate that, uh, and we thank you for that. We're grateful for this great country and for our lives in it. At the same time, Lord, in the sufferings and tribulations and the afflictions that we do find ourselves in, we need to have an understanding that it's all right to be stoned to death because we're already dying. Dying that you might live in and through us, that others might see that there is a person who has died and risen from the dead, who lives forevermore and can offer real life, eternal life, supernatural life. And so I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters today, Lord, in whatever situation we find ourselves in that is adverse or difficult or troublesome, that we would carry about in our bodies the dying of the Lord, that His life would be manifest through that. Thank you, Lord. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. All right, closer to noon, maybe 10 till or so, depends. Uh, we'll be gathering back in here for the baptism. And as I said, if you're able to stay, it's a, a wonderful thing to just stay and encourage those six or seven or eight folks who have signed up to be baptized. Uh, cafe is open with all of our signature stuff over there that's some of the finest stuff in town. Uh, meet somebody. There's got to be somebody here that you've never seen before. And uh, go up to that person and just introduce yourself to them and uh, tell them that the Lord loves them or whatever is on your heart that's encouraging. The uh, invites for the Dennis Agajanian event, grab one at least, invite at least one person, grab a handful of them. Let's get all of those out. They won't do us any good. Uh, you know, after next Sunday night. I don't want to just throw them away. Let somebody else throw them away. At least they're out there, you know, where, where they could have been picked up by somebody. Pray for the print ads. Uh, pray for the radio ads. That God would bring the people He wants to come to encourage Christians uh, and to evangelize unbelievers. Guys are down here to pray for you this morning. If you're not a believer, you want to be led to faith in Jesus Christ, we'll do that. If you have a prayer request, they'll pray for you. Wednesday night, 7 p.m., Ignite.
come and visit us. This Wednesday is the last Wednesday of the month, so we'll be having communion as well. Uh, and that's always a special uh, and wonderful time to be blessed as we come to the table of the Lord and uh, think about what he's done for us on our behalf. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name.